morning. If you got your Bibles, flip with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning as we wrap up our Firm Foundation series together. What's well, a known reality that times change and technology advances, right? All you have to do is look around your house and you'll see things that were cutting edge a few years ago that are now obsolete. Just this week, my daughter found a video camera at our house that we purchased that was going to be awesome when our first child was born. And as she's going around recording, you're looking at the, what's on the camera and going, that is awful. <laughs> Why would anyone ever use that? Well, some companies, some brands, some products adapt, while others do not. For example, in 1975, the very first digital camera was invented. It was a point, point one megapixel beast that was about the size of a toaster. Now, point one, like these pictures are horrible quality, right? There's nothing there. You would never use this. You know what company invented the first digital camera? Kodak. That is correct. Kodak knew that they had something absolutely earth-shattering. The technology was going to be amazing. And so they poured millions and millions of dollars into developing the first commercial digital camera. And as they prepared to launch, certain members of the senior management team put a stop to the whole endeavor. You know why? Film. They said, we don't want to advance with that, which is as good as we know it is. We can't move forward with that because we don't want to risk losing film revenue. Well, you've probably seen something similar to this, but check out this picture. This is a picture on the left of film sales. And on the right, the blue is digital cameras and the bottom is analog cameras. We know exactly what happened to film. A company committed to creating Kodak moments lost sight of what was core to their mission and instead focused on a method. And they said, this we have to stick to. And as a result, we now, they're probably a case study anytime we bring up companies that have lost sight of a proper strategy to move forward and not to adapt. Well, maybe you're not a technology person. Maybe you like food. Maybe you've been to a local establishment called McDonald's. You see, back in 2005, we're going to get there in a second. We just stole the punchline there. Um, really, back in 2005, McDonald's said, hey, there's this, there's this health food craze. Like, people actually want to be healthy now. And we know we're not exactly in the market for health. And so, what are we going to do? We're going to put forward a healthy menu, which is going to have salads. But guess what? How many of you guys ever go to McDonald's for a salad? Nobody, because what they realized that while they'd made some progress, they went from like 3% of their sales was devoted to salads. What they realized is nobody goes to McDonald's and goes, I think I want a salad. And no one who goes to McDonald's thinking I want a Big Mac walks into McDonald's and goes, you know what? Scrap the Big Mac. I'm going to take a salad. And then what's really funny is what this picture shows us is if you think you're going to McDonald's and you think you're going to choose something healthy, the salad is actually less healthy than the Big Mac. So the healthy menu wasn't even healthy and was offered at a place when people didn't even go to to be healthy. 
Kodak, McDonald's, made a mistake when it came to a strategy that they were seeking to implement. You see, a successful strategy must be willing to adapt. A successful strategy must never lose sight of the ultimate goal and the core mission. Well, over the last two weeks, we've been talking about the foundation that we want to build on as a church. Not a foundation, really, that we came up with at all. It's a foundation that we see in Scripture. We go, hey, how does God want us to walk forward as his followers? How, what kind of church does God want us to be here as we seek to be faithful to the mission that he has given us? So last couple of weeks, we said we're going to summarize the simplicity of what sometimes we make really complicated, of what it looks like to live in love like Jesus. And we said, hey, at Sanctuary, our desire is to build on the foundation of this. We said we want to be, exist to live in love like Jesus by loving God, loving others, and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And so over the last couple of weeks, we talked about loving God, what that meant, to love God first, to love God most. And last week, Troy talked about loving others and beautifully laid out how literally it's all throughout Scripture. We got love God, love others, love others, love others, love others, love others. It's impossible to love God and not love others. That's tied to the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us. And so this morning, we want to come to making disciples of Jesus Christ. And back at the beginning of this series, I showed you this stool. And I said, hey, the way we're going to frame this, this foundation is we're going to say, hey, look, we've got three legs. And if our desire as a church, as individuals, is to live in love like Jesus, the foundation of the stool, the top that we're going to sit on is living and loving like Jesus. We want that to be true of us. But how are we going to support that? How are we going to actually live that out? And it's going to be supported by the three legs that we have here. What's interesting is that these three legs aren't equal. You see, the first one, loving God, and the second one, loving others, aren't just something for us to do. More importantly, there's something that is to be true of us. You see, you know and I know what it's like to be loved by someone who feels obligated to love. It doesn't feel very good, does it? Like you're doing this because you have to. When for us to live in love like Jesus, we cannot be people who put these three things in front of us as a to-do list and try to check them off every day. Instead, loving God and loving others is not something we do. It's who Jesus invites us to be. I want to love others because I love God. I want to love God. And as a result of my love for God, I will love others. It flows out of us. It's who we are. And then we get to the third. And the third really is a directive. It is an invitation for us to take a step as a result of the fact that we love God. And because we want to be faithful to loving others, we are going to be people who make disciples. You see, as we wrap up this Firm Foundation series, we're going to be talking about what Jesus invites us to be a part of. And we're going to be reminded of the 2000, over 2,000-year-old 2000 strategy that Jesus gave the church. Because of who we are in Christ, we're invited to do something. We're invited to join God in accomplishing the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. Once again, the ask is simple, but is deeply profound. When you flipped your Bible open and you went to Matthew 28, you probably got to Matthew 28 and you look down at verse 16 and you go, oh, I know what this is about. Right? What, what, how would you describe this passage? What's the title given to this passage? The Great Commission, right? Ever been to a missions conference? This is what we're going to talk about, right? Like, go, make disciples of all nations. And once again, something incredibly familiar, I believe, oftentimes get, gets lost on us in our tendency is to get bored with the familiar and try to move on to something else. And so my invitation this morning is for us to step back into this passage and look at what maybe we've forgotten and possibly even see something that we haven't yet seen. 
that Jesus wants to reveal to us today. If we forget this passage, if we forget this strategy, this church and any church will be no different than Kodak and McDonald's. People on the outside looking in, going, I think they've lost sight of what was core to who they are. So let's dig in to these verses together. Matthew 28, 16 through 20 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sometimes I hear this text and I feel guilty. I hear this and I go, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not doing that. I need to do more of that. And I want to stop us right there. Because I don't think that's right. I don't think that's Jesus' intention. And one of the reasons I know that's not the intention, the goal may be to challenge us, maybe to spur us on, but not to make us feel guilty or feel shame because of what we aren't doing. And I love this. And I didn't really pick up on this until this week diving into this. I want to point out two things that I think set the stage before we get to what Jesus calls us to do that are so important. First, what's the third word you see up there? Eleven. Why are there eleven? Judas, right? There were 12. Judas, you know the story, betrays Jesus. And then when he realizes what's happening, he realizes what a mistake he's made. He comes running back to the religious leaders and said, hey, take the money back. I made a huge mistake. I was wrong. And they go, sorry, not our problem. And what happens to Judas? He runs out and hangs himself. So we read this text and it starts with now the 11 disciples. And we go, yeah. There's only 11, because guess what? Nobody would expect Judas to be still following Jesus. But I think there's something for us to learn here, because there are 11. Which means it includes somebody else who did something pretty bad, who made a pretty big mistake around the time that Jesus was betrayed. Who's that? Peter. Peter betrayed him, or didn't betray him, Peter denied him, right? Not once, not twice, but three times after Jesus told him exactly what would happen. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Repentance. Judas was not kicked off the team by Jesus. Judas looked at what had happened, what he had done, and said, there's no way I can participate in that team. And he took himself off. Peter felt guilt, felt shame, was undone, weeping at what he had done. And yet he somehow finds a way back. Why? Because there was repentance and there was forgiveness and there was grace. And guess what? Peter's not the only one. Look at the law, the fact that there are 11. These are not the 11 perfect disciples. This is one, Peter who denied him, James and John who asked for the best seats in the kingdom and wanted to call down fire on people who rejected Jesus. Not exactly Jesus' A-team. Now, you keep going down the list, right? It just goes, goes on. Thomas doubted. Nathaniel questioned if anything good could even come out of Nazareth when he heard about Jesus. Not exactly your greatest fan club. All of them. But Peter fled at Jesus' arrest. So before we read a text like this and we feel guilty, I want to remind you who Jesus is talking to. 
He's talking to imperfect people who've made mistake after mistake after mistake. And we might grade some as more mis- bigger mistakes than others. But the reality is there was not a single person that Jesus is addressing that was somehow more qualified than you and me to receive what he has to say. Jesus is inviting you, he's inviting me to be a part of his work today, just like those 11. Not because you're perfect, but because you are loved. Not because he needs you, but because he wants you to join him in the work that he's doing. I don't know your story. I don't know what excuses you may have for why you think you may have been disqualified from being a part of the work that God is inviting you into. But I know the words of Paul that ring true for all of us in Romans 8.1. It says, there is now therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus isn't giving a mission here. He isn't giving the strategy that we're about to dive into to people who are overly qualified or able. He's giving it to people who've been forgiven. He's giving it to people who've messed up and know that they need Jesus. And he's inviting them to be a part of the work that he's doing. So Matthew points to the 11, and he also points to another group of people that I want us to take note of. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You got 11 imperfect disciples, and you've got people who are sitting here looking at a risen Jesus who are doubting. Who are these people? We don't know. We don't know how big of a crowd it was. We don't know who all was there. But the reality is there are people that are doubting. And this, this word for doubting is the same word that's used when Peter walks on water and he begins to, to sink. It's because he looks around and he goes, you can just picture the scene as Peter's walking on water going, this is unbelievable. And he's going, this defies all logic. And he begins to wonder, how, how is this happening? And he begins to sink. It's the same word that's used here for people going, I'm trying to still wrap my head around how this is possible. I'm trying to understand how what I saw a couple weeks ago when this guy was crucified is now living. I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I'm trying to believe, but I'm struggling to understand. I'm guessing that may be some of us. Times in our life, we look around and we go, I'm struggling, God, to make sense out of what you're doing. I'm struggling to, I want to believe, but I, 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 man, it's just hard for me to believe. Guess what? Jesus is looking at you and me and he's saying, I know it's hard. Jesus, there's a reason Jesus was most amazed by faith and most um, frustrated at people's lack of faith. But what we never see is God shunning a doubter. God also never lowers the requirements for belief. He didn't say, I know it's hard, so I'll make it easier. Because I know it's hard, I'll give you grace. I know it's hard. I'm going to help you. I know it's hard. I'm giving you all these other reasons around to help you believe what is, in fact, true. So if you've got 11 disciples who've messed up many times that are somehow eligible for participating in what God is doing, and you've got others who are doubting that Jesus is inviting into to grow in their faith and the belief and continue his mission, how much more so are these next few words for you and me? There is no mistake that disqualifies you. And there is no doubt that Jesus can't overcome. So let's look at the familiar words, the Great Commission we find in verse 18. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, when we read this passage, it can be easy to jump to the bottom line. I need to tell more people about Jesus. But if that's all we take from this, we've missed a whole lot. These three verses seem to give us several things to do, but Jesus is actually only making one command. One command. If you, got it, if you have your Bible in front of you, I would encourage you, circle, make disciples. Make disciples is the central command in this entire passage. Now you might go, well, there's a whole bunch of other things, and I'm making a list. I'm saying, do this, do this, do this. No, everything flows out of one command, make disciples. You see, the key to understanding the heart of Jesus is actually in a grammar lesson. Now, the fact that I'm about to give you a grammar lesson is highly ironic. God know, knew exactly what I needed. Maybe when you got married, you, you realized, man, God gave me a, this spouse because God knew that I needed this. Like, grammar is not my thing. So I married an English teacher. <laughs> But here, this is really important, and I'm not going to get technical. I just want to point that, because I think this is, this is so big. If you haven't heard this before, this should shape and be part of your Bible. Whenever you are studying Scripture, this should be a part of how you view Scripture, if you want to understand what God is in calling, calling us to do. You see, the grammar lesson here is tied to these, the idea of the mood of the verb. You see, make disciples is a imperative. And when we look at the New Testament especially, you have imperatives and you have indicatives. Now, an indicative is a statement of fact. God loves you. It's an indicative. An imperative is a command. It's a statement of command. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the imperative. Now, delineating these two different verb moods helps delineate what God has done and what we are invited to do. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, and I love this, this summary of this indicative, imperative concept when he writes this. He says, now, here's the important point in gospel grammar. God's indicatives are always the basis for God's imperatives. This is why we often find the word therefore in the New Testament. It's because of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ that we should therefore respond in a certain way. What God does in his grace, the indicative, is the foundation for what we do in our response of faith and obedience, responding to his imperative. Now, think about this for a second. God has never called us to do something. There's never been an imperative in order for us to earn something from him. The imperatives always flow out of the indicatives. Because God loves us, we said at the very beginning of the series, like, love God. Well, we only love God because he loved us, right? The indicative to love God only comes after the, imper the imperative to love God only comes after the indicative of he loved us. So these build together, but it's important for us to recognize when you're looking at a passage, hey, what's the imperative? The imperative is to make disciples. How are we going to make disciples? That's exactly what I want us to look at this morning. And I want to do this by pointing out five keys that I see to Jesus's disciple-making strategy. If the imperative, if the call to action, if the command is to make disciples, what does that look like? What does that mean? First, 
we completely trust God's authority. If you look back in Matthew 18, he starts by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Authority has been a central theme throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is actually centered around five teaching blocks. Five teaching points of Jesus. One of the most famous being the Sermon on the Mount. But you see Jesus teaching, and at the end of each teaching time, you know, throughout all that he's doing, you see it tied to his authority and people marveling at his authority. Matthew 7, 29, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. We see in his authority throughout Matthew and how Jesus um, lives his life. We see his authority over nature when he calms storms. We see his authority over sickness when he heals. We see his authority over sin when he forgives. We see his authority over rulers and nations when he's before Pilate. Going, hey, you have no power that hasn't been given by me. And ultimately, we see his authority over death. And so here, as Jesus is leaving, he says, you cannot do anything without, forget, without remembering that I have authority over all things, heaven and earth. We do not do anything in our authority. Everything we do as followers of Jesus is under his authority and because of his authority. Secondly, we take God's good news with us and we validate its truth. You've probably heard many times we hear when this passage, when it says go, it's not a go there, it's a really more of an as you are going Meaning, where do we make disciples? We make disciples wherever we are. Is there a call for us to go to all nations? Is there a call for us to take the gospel to unreached people groups? Absolutely. But sometimes I think we take that as an excuse not to do it right where we are. Whether where we are in school, where we are working, in our neighborhoods, in our interactions on a day-to-day basis, Jesus is saying, make disciples right there. Disciple-making doesn't happen when you get to a destination. Disciple-making happens wherever you are. It's saying yes. It's having eyes that are open to be able to see what God wants us to do right around us. And let's be honest. It's a whole lot easier to fly halfway around the world to Cambodia to tell them about Jesus than it is to talk to the person who's cutting your hair, is it not? His invitation, because of his authority, is for us to, as we go to point to his authority and his truth. And this is what I love, and validate its truth. As we go, how we live our life, this helps people see if what we're saying actually lines up with how we're living. We can't point to God's love and God's joy and God's peace if our lives don't reflect it as well, right? So disciple-making begins by completely trusting God's authority We then take God's good news with us as we go, validating its truth. And thirdly, we teach God's commands and ways. He gives us two ways in which this teaching happens. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Baptizing and teaching. Why would you just break these two things up? Baptizing and teaching. One, he's pointing to the, hey, Baptizing means part of making disciples is recognizing there is a line while our journey, individual journeys have a journey over time and maybe God's using all kinds of different people in our journey pointing us to Jesus. You look back over your story, you're going, hey, this person, this person, this person all pointed me to ultimately getting to a place where I said yes to Jesus. 
But disciple making cannot be disciple making if we don't recognize that there is a point. If we are dead in our trespasses and sins, then there is a moment when we go from death to life. At that moment, the purpose of baptism is for us to publicly declare our association with Jesus. Because we were dead, we get buried with him in, through baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. It's a public association with who Jesus is and what he's called us to be a part of. So baptizing points to, hey, part of making disciples is recognizing there are people who are on the other side of faith. Maybe here today, you're here because you're checking out. You're looking and saying, what is this Christianity thing? What is this God thing? I don't know. I'm trying to understand. Yes, our goal here would be for you to answer your questions, to point to God's truth, ultimately to get you to a place where you can say, yes, I believe. I believe. If you are doubting, if you're questioning, guess what? Jesus was talking to you when he did this because the people around him at this day were doubting, questioning, wondering if they could believe. But the goal of Jesus is to move you to a place where you choose, while, while it's still faith, for you to choose to believe what Jesus says is true. And ultimately, it doesn't end there. And this is where I think we fall short, right? The Great Commission, we say sometimes we think, go make converts. It doesn't say go make converts. It doesn't say, hey, get people to cross the line, dunk them in a tank, tally the number, keep track, and let's, let that be the celebration of what you're doing. Disciple making says we want people to go from death to life, and then we want them to what? To teach God's commands so that we can put them into practice so we can live God's way. You see, here is where God is brilliant. First, we must learn so that we can teach. And David Platt says it so great. He says, God has this whole discipleship thing rigged. Because when he says, go make disciples, he knows that you and I can't make disciples if we are not first what? Disciples. So in order for me to go make a disciple, it doesn't mean I become a disciple and reach the level of discipleship where now you can go make disciples. It's an instantaneous, hey, as soon as you are a follower of Jesus, the invitation is for you to make disciples. And guess what? That is gonna keep you and me in a constant place of dependence. You don't believe that? Ask any of our small group leaders with our students or even our children's teachers. They ask really, really good questions. And you know what's amazing? is as we disciple others, the wide-eyed wonder that comes when they see truths that we maybe have become numb to. And we're reminded of, you're right. That is absolutely amazing. A couple weeks ago, we're reading through, uh, doing our Bible reading plan, and we invited our kids into to reading the Bible with us. And I heard from the other room, my youngest daughter goes, Dad! Like, uh, yes, Bryce. Did you know did you know Eve was made out of a rib of Adam? I said, yeah, isn't that amazing? She goes, no, that's gross. <laughs> and I said, well, Adam was made out of dirt. Is that much better? <laughs> but it's a silly example, right, of the wide-eyed wonder. You go, yeah, yeah, well, I know that. No, do you know that? Do you remember that? And as you move through the story of Scripture, being reminded of like, hey, this actually happened. This is actually true. You see, baptizing, helping people move from death to life, and then teaching a lifelong time of understanding, growing, grasping, learning what, who God is and what he's called us into. So making disciples, when you circle that in the middle of your text here, underline go, underline baptizing, and underline teaching. 
Because those are components of what it looks like to make disciples. But this is absolutely huge. Because if we stop there, we've missed. We've missed how this is actually going to happen. Because at the end of verse 20, it says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the fourth key to Jesus' disciple-making strategy is that we are totally dependent on God's presence. If we miss number four, we might as well pack up and go home. Because as much as, as good as we think we may be, we can't do anything without God's presence. This is throughout Scripture, and the greatest example is in Exodus, when Moses is leading God's people, and in Exodus 33:15, he Moses said to God, "If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here." As we think about a foundation and who we want to be as a church, this is absolutely essential, because we don't want to be a church that does anything outside of the presence of God. Because there's no song, there's no sermon, there's no life group, there's no Bible study, there's no mission trip that can do anything without God's presence. Forgetting God's presence is so easy to do, which is why in this text, the second imperative that's given is behold. What does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to make disciples, but he knows that the key to making disciples is never moving past this idea of beholding God's presence, seeking God's presence. We want to be a church that is marked by the presence of God. And this is what's crazy. Just a couple Fridays ago, we're hanging out on a Friday morning with our men's study. And just around our table, a couple of the guys, we're talking about how we've, people have come to sanctuary. And a couple of the guys were like, I, I don't know how to say it, but God just drew me here. And many of you, your stories are the same way. And our prayer is that God would continue to draw. God would continue to bring people, not because of what's being offered or what's being done, but because people go, there's just, there's, God's presence is there. And even as we sang this morning, you know, you could just feel it. You knew that in your heart, like mine, you're going, yes, that's what I want. I know there's all these other things I chase on a day-to-day basis, but what I want above all else, what my heart cries for, is the very presence of God. We cannot make disciples on our own, which is why we must be totally dependent on God's presence. And lastly, and this is important too, we keep our eyes on the ending of God's story. Maybe we think it's just an eloquent way of ending it, but I think there's so much truth to the fact that Jesus says, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This story, this world has an end. There is an end. Jesus isn't up there going, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure how we're going to wrap this thing up. He knows how the story ends, and he knows when the story ends. The fact that there's an ending should be incredibly encouraging to you and me. And it should be incredibly motivating because an end is coming. And when the end comes, it is the end. And there's no ability to, to do anything else that you wish you would have done. And so right now, with urgency, looking at what is God has put in front of us, the invitation that God has made, the question is, 
What do you want to do? How will you respond to the imperative that God has given us to make disciples in light of the fact that there is an end? See, the Great Commission is Jesus' strategy. Jesus' strategy to complete his mission. John 3.16, we all know, but the verse after it reminds us of why Jesus came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But look at this. Why did Jesus come? What is this? The Great Commission is a strategy to fulfill what? This mission. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world in order that the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to save the world. The strategy for saving the world isn't secret. It's very clear. And it's been given to you and As we wrap up these three weeks on our firm foundation as a church, I want to remind us that Jesus' disciple-making strategy has not changed. Jesus isn't Kodak. He's not McDonald's. And when you look at the church, over the years, a lot of the failures of the church aren't because there's something wrong with Jesus' strategy, but we've tried to add to it. We've tried to improve it. We've tried to make it seem more relevant. And the reality is, Jesus didn't ask us to do that. He simply asked us to follow him. You see, Matthew 4.19, when Jesus first called his disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. From the very beginning, Jesus was making it very clear that following me will mean that you are a disciple maker. You are a disciple who makes disciples. That's what disciples do. And then later, Paul would write very clearly and succinctly in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As we follow Jesus, we want people to follow us as we become more like Jesus. Our foundation here as a church is not based on something we've come up with. It's based on the strategy and the mission that Jesus has put before us. As we love God and love others, the desired outcome will be that disciples would be made. The methods and practices may look different over the years, but it does not mean the strategy has changed. Disciple making is still who Jesus has called his followers to be. So my challenge for us is to first be disciples and then make disciples. If you want to make it really simple, the call in Matthew 28 is simply this. Be one and make one. Because God is in the, in the ministry of multiplication, not addition. And multiplication, as you know, spreads crazily quick. And the reason you and I are here today is because 11 guys, imperfect guys, says, we'll follow you in that. We'll do what you're calling us to do. We'll trust you one person at a time. And as a result of that, you and I are now here. We desire to be a church built on the foundation of loving God, loving others, and making disciples. So this invitation is for you to be part of personally. What does it look like for you to live this out to be a lover of God, to be a lover of people who makes disciples. As I thought about this this week, I thought about 
this morning and us looking around. As you look around at an empty seat that's near you, my question is this. Who in your world is God inviting you not just to come to church to come to church? Who is there in your world that God's saying, hey, would you go after them? Would you love them? Would you show them what it looks like to follow me? Because here's the crazy formula that, that God has put in a, the church. He knows the, the excitement and the growth that happens in a church within disciple making happens when someone who's been in a relationship with Jesus, who knows Jesus, who's walked with Jesus, comes in contact with someone who is, doesn't know Jesus or just became, come, came to know Jesus. What happens is the life that the new believer brings and the wisdom and the experience that the seasoned believer brings works together to bring life, passion, excitement, and joy to the life that we're living collectively as a faith family. Our desire is not to shuffle the deck of West Cobb and have people come from other churches. Our desire is to fulfill this mission that God has given us, just to look around us and go, what if next year, sitting in these empty seats today, are people who come to know Jesus because you have simply been faithful to living and loving like Jesus? What would that look like? Think about it. This is not just like, a, oh, let me, let me see if I can put that on my to-do list. We're talking about changing eternity. That is what God has called us to be a part of. That's what God has invited us to be. And listen to me. I'm not saying this from this posture because I've got it figured out. One of the hardest things this week and going through this is, is God going, hey, you've got work to do. Because the easiest thing for me is to say that I'm doing this because I get to stand here and talk to you. Well, guess what? This is the easiest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is to follow God as we go. And I say what I said earlier about the person cutting your hair because just last week I'm sitting there and in my mind there's wrestling. And guess what? I said nothing. That's not out of guilt. That's not out of shame. That's just saying, hey, I want to press into this and I want us to press into this because I believe when we look around the corner a couple years from now, what we get, we'll get to see is not because we have a fuller room on Sunday morning, but because we have lives that have been changed. And guess whose life is going to be changed the most? Yours and mine. That is what I want to invite us into. That's what I want us to press into. That's what I want us to be about as a faith family. As we love God, love others, and make disciples. My challenge, my invitation is that God would break you and me free from stale religion. So that I and you can freely and passionately follow Jesus however he leads. And may we live in the truth of God's indicative. God loves you. As we respond to God's imperative, make disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your strategy, God, that you've put in front of us over 2,000 years ago, and it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed because you haven't changed. So God, this morning, as we celebrate your goodness and your faithfulness, God, we ask that you find us faithful, us faithful to following you. God, you made something really complicated, really simple. You said, follow me. So God, we ask this morning that you would allow us 
to let go of the fears, the concerns, the doubts, the worries that we may have. And God, you would give us the courage and the freedom to simply follow you. God, in these next few moments, there may be people in this room that have yet to say yes to you. And for those people, God, we just implore the God that you would speak to their hearts. You would give them the courage. You'd give them the faith to say, yes, I trust you. And God, for the rest of us that know you, God, would you allow us with open hands to say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. The answer is simply yes. So God, would you speak? Would you allow us to respond to a God who loves us and has invited us to be a part of what he is doing? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.